that's why they call him the king of pop. What's going on, everybody? This is the Cover Band Confidential Podcast, the podcast for cover band musicians and band leaders to learn how to rock more and suck less. Here in Atlanta, Georgia, I'm Adam Johnson. Here in Greensboro, North Carolina, I'm Dan Wright. So, you're getting a shot, aren't you? I am. I am. I get the shot Monday. First one of two. It's the Pfizer one I'm getting. So, um, during the recording of this episode, I got a notification that I also am getting my first one on uh, Tuesday of next week. So Awesome. I was feeling very left out. Both you and Mike were saying that you already had your appointment set, and yep. I was feeling very envious. Uh, but I got my appointment, so all is good there. Good to go. Here's what I love is um, I'll get my first shot on Monday, and then the second shot three weeks later, and then two weeks after that, you're like cooked, ready, yeah. right? And that is the Monday before my birthday, which is on that Saturday. Woop woop. Party time. Hell yeah. Yeah. Speaking of good times, this episode is one for the books. Totally. Uh, we went ahead and did the interview and then did this part uh, just so we would know what to say. But this week, we had the opportunity to talk with Jennifer Batten, who uh, is best known as the uh, touring guitar player for Michael Jackson during his you know whole peak situation. And wow, what a conversation. Gosh, she's just phenomenal. She's just so great. She was super gracious, very smart, very funny, very informative, just overall just a fantastic, a fantastic guest. Yep. And, uh, you know, as a, as a lifelong, like Michael Jackson fan, like this was, you know, this was a, a bucket list moment for me. And I feel like I did a pretty good job of not completely. Oh, you did. Out. No, you did. Yeah. No, there was no squealing. There was no anything. It was, it was well done. I felt like I, I kept it together. You as did. Best I could. You did. You did. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, what we would really appreciate is if you would check out uh, her website, which is jenniferbatten.com, and uh, also look into the event that she is promoting, which is Get the Good Gigs, which is a part of the Guitar Cloud Symposium. Uh, this event is March 20th. Uh, it's an all-day online event where she has uh, some amazing guests talk about uh, how to audition for gigs, how to get good gigs, and basically all the stuff that we've been talking about, but like with successful <laughs> like really huge names. Yeah. And a great way for you to um, promote that event is to promote this episode. And the easiest way to do that is to just take a little screenshot of the episode uh, and post it on social media, tag us, tag the show, tag Jennifer. Uh, all of that would make uh, getting the word out for her event super helpful. I've seen some of you guys already doing that and uh, it's just it's a great way to promote without having to put a review out or anything like that don't want to hold you any longer we're going to go ahead and turn it over to our interview with Jennifer Batten guys our guest this week is a world-renowned guitarist and clinician best known as a hired gun for artists like Jeff Beck and Michael Jackson she is also the founder of the Guitar Cloud Symposium, an online community geared towards guitar players looking to improve their skills, both as musicians and in business. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jennifer Batten. Hey, hey, hey. Glad to be here. Great Thank you so you. much for uh, taking the time out of your schedule to uh, have a conversation with us. You know, I've been watching your social media kind of around this whole uh, event that you guys are promoting, and, you know, you were on... YouTube a couple of days ago talking about it. You were on Instagram Live with uh, one of your guests, Pete Thorne, talking about it last night. I mean, yeah. 
you're you're a busy person, so we we definitely we really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, slash insane. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, and we're also both big fans. You know, we both um, you know Thank you. know of you from from uh, a lot of the things you've done. So it's really it's just an honor to have you. Oh, it's great. You know, I started listening to your podcast because I, I'm so burnt on travel that. Uh, I kept thinking of ways to not jump on a plane, <laughs> you know, after 30 years of broken guitars and missed connection is I'm kind of <laughs> over it. And the pandemic has kind of turned into a blessing after the th- first two months of sucking my thumb, wondering what the hell I was going to do. But I started co- a cover band a couple years ago it, so I could stay home more. And so I really got into it. I hadn't done the cover band thing for God, 30 years. You know, as soon as I got the Jackson gig, I was just off and running for a bit. So it's come back around to that. And it's it's really interesting. Now there's support through podcasts. So so people can get all kinds of information about it. I, I wish this was around when I uh, first started working in a cover band in the 80s. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this and I'm fairly certain that you might be the first guitar player I was ever aware of because my introduction to this was probably the uh, the Bad World Tour documentary that was on, like, I think NBC. Like, I just remember Ahmad and Felicia Rashad were the hosts of this thing. And I was maybe, I mean, I was young before, you know, Van Halen ever, you know, got his claws in me. But I just remember watching that video and seeing that tour and being like, what is this? And you were you were definitely the focal point, um, at least as far as I was concerned. So, you know, this is a massive full circle moment for me. But um, it's just it's just, you know, the Internet and podcasting and stuff is just an amazing medium uh, that gets us to connect each other, connect to each other in this way. It's just it's amazing. So once again, can't thank you enough for being here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My, my pleasure. Let's uh, let's chat about everything and everything. Hairspray t- to chops. <laughs> you know, for us, you know, some of the stuff we you just got to ask because you know there's just some parts of your career that like you've probably answered questions thousands of times. But you know, we also want to you know pull some interesting tidbits out and make sure that this is uh, a unique experience for uh, for not only our listeners but also you as well. But let's start at the very beginning. What made you pick up a guitar in the first place? It was twofold. Part of it was sheer jealousy that my sister had a guitar and I didn't. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world when I was eight years old. So I I asked my parents, why I think Christmas was coming up. I asked them if I could get a guitar. And back then it was very unusual for a kid to get an electric guitar for their first guitar. And that's what I got. And I thought it was the super coolest thing in the world because the second part of why I started was the Beatles. I was one of those kids sitting in front of the black and white TV when the Beatlemania came to America. And that was it. I mean, everybody in my town was really into the Beatles. And, you know, I didn't know from guitar models back then. I just thought mine looked like what Paul had or what George had. I probably didn't even know the difference between bass and regular guitar back then. It's amazing. Um, so, was it like a was a like a like a Sears deal? My first guitar came out of a Sears catalog. I don't know, you know, that seems kind of quaint nowadays. But. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I don't. Yeah. I don't even know if there was a brand name on the headstock. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, in fact, I sold that thing in front of my elementary school when I got my next guitar because I I was thinking, well, 
I, why would I need two? You know, I got this new one. <laughs> and I, I, I sold it for like $10, and I thought <sighs> it was a good deal. Mm. I, you know, that was the first time I ever sold anything, and what an idiot. I kind of wish I still had it, but I have pictures of it. No, that's great. Uh, so, you know, at some we all kind of pick up an instrument for one reason or another, and then at some point, you know, the practicing and the passion kind of change into something specific. So, like, when do you think in your journey guitar changed from just being a thing that you were interested in or something you were passionate about into something that could potentially be a career? Well, I remember the evening I announced to my mother that I wanted to play guitar for a living. I was 12 years old, and the only reason I remember it is because it came with a warning. She said, well, honey, you know, it's music is a very competitive business. And I'm 12 years old, and I go, what does that even mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to play guitar. You know, you have no idea what an ass-whooping is going to be coming at you for the next couple decades. Uh, so, yeah, that's when I announced it. And then, you know, you go through so many changes as a teenager. I remember we had to fill out a form of what we thought we wanted to do for a living when I was in high school. And at that time, I was really into backpacking. So I, I want to be a forest ranger. <laughs> so, And uh, you just evolve and experience different things. And guitar was always a part of my life con constantly. Uh, I always took guitar lessons and the family moved several times. So I ended up with... My first teacher, when I was eight, I was learning, you know, the first three frets and learning to read out of the Alfred book. Uh, so that was a, a few years. And then when we moved, I ended up with a teacher that was into finger picking and had a folk circles that would once a month, they'd gather and read out of a book and play that sort of stuff. And then the next guy was a rock guy. Next guy was a blues guy. So I had a quite a few different genres that I was able to taste before I got into uh, Musicians Institute, which was just GIT at the time. It was only yeah, guitar. Yeah. In uh, 1978, I was in their third class that they ever had. And I, I flunked the test to get in. After, after all those guitar lessons my parents paid for, I learned a bunch of songs and techniques, but nobody taught me the tools. Like I knew my blues scales, but I didn't know diatonic scales. I didn't know chord scales. One of the things I was asked at the test to get into the school was just play a G major seven. And I played first position G seven because I didn't know there was a difference between a dominant seventh and a major seventh. So they basically said, you're not done cooking. You know, you go back to San Diego and study with this jazz guitar player named Peter Sprague. And he whooped me into shape, man. He had me playing Chet Baker solos and chord scales and inversions. And it was enough that six months later I was able to get into the school. Awesome. That's great. Uh, so, you know, at that point, you know, you're 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 kind of like pulling yourself in or kind of pushing into the 80s now. But you know, for you, I think what you left the Musicians Institute 79, 80. Yeah. Is that about right? Yeah, March 79. So between 1979 and then the getting the gig with Michael Jackson in 1989. What did that 10 years post-education look like for you as far as kind of building reputation, getting out there, like, you know, establishing yourself as a, as a musician in the marketplace? Yeah, well, um, I started teaching right away. 
which was really valuable. I mean, I, I think everybody should teach. Yeah. It, well, having said that, I immediately think of really gr- great players that can't even make a sentence, right? So right, right. <laughs> you have to have somewhat communication skills to be able to do that. But it solidifies things in your head. It's one thing to understand it, another thing to play it, and a whole other brain process to be able to teach it. And that, that really locks it in. So I did a lot of teaching. Um, and I, let's see, my first gig ever, I made $12.50 playing at a hippie cafe with a um, another guitar player reading out of the real book, doing jazz standards. Nice. Because that's where my head was at when I got out of the school. It was a very jazz-oriented school at that point. It was two bebop guys for teaching, um, Ron Eshte, Joe Diorio, and Don Mock was the fusion guy. And that was like the Mahavishnu side and the Al Dimiola side of music back in that era. So I, I just integrated into the community and tried to go to any jam that I could. I eventually ended up uh, a couple years later in a, a band that was my first real family band where you hang together, you do gigs for years together. Uh, and the thing is, I was really into fusion at that time. I was listening to Larry Carlton and Lee Rittenauer and kind of a jazz snob. And yeah. and uh, I saw this band open for Lee Rittenauer. And I go, man, they're, they're a local band. They're doing originals. I want to be in that band. But I was I was too scared to call anybody. And, it, you know, like things happen when you throw that seed into the universe, they called me within a couple of weeks of that show and said, we need a new guitar player. And I, I show up with this Gibson Birdland and they had switched to cover tunes. Mm. They weren't going to do the fusion anymore. Well, over the years we went back and forth depending on what the gig was. But so all of a sudden we're doing police songs and Pat Benatar and I got this jazz box that is completely inappropriate for the gig. <laughs> and uh, we were all young and we, I'm sure everybody sucked back then, but uh it was fine with them. So, bam, I was in the band and spent a lot of time and evolved and got chops on stage and learned to get past the absolute fright. Because when I went to the Guitar Institute of Technology, which is a mouthful, I I think I'm the only student that had never had a gig before. Hmm. I would do my guitar lessons and play in my bedroom, and that was it. So there, there was a massive evolution in just a couple of years with my first band. Yeah, I mean, you know, thinking about guitar players now and kind of the journey that a lot of them go on there there are way more of those you know bedroom musicians who haven't cut their teeth doing you know live performances uh and you know it's it's kind of nice to know that it, it's not necessarily a new thing it's something that you know we all have to kind of go through uh i sure. i you know i was cutting my teeth at 15 years old playing you know basement parties and you know crappy gigs and stuff and you know in our friends basements and stuff but um yeah, I mean, I think, you know, getting to that 10,000 hour point where you're just, you've kind of established, you know, your core competencies and kind of like, you know, I, I would assume that the 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 time spent in, in that group, you know, kind of helped inform your preparation process and how you kind of take on new material, how you onboard, onboard stuff. I mean, is, do you think that that played a part or was it more of the uh, Guitar Institute kind of disciplinary stuff that informed that process uh git definitely kicked my ass in the discipline department and i just relished being in a band and i would put in a ridiculous amount of time making sure i got every nuance of every part of every song to the best of my ability which i 
having said that, I wouldn't ever want to hear myself back then. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you grow so much and you think you got it back then. And then 20 years later, you listen and go, no, I didn't have that. In fact, I remember uh, one of the covers we did was Owner of a Lonely Heart. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't have a, a harmonizer. And mm. so I would try to do the intervals with my fingers. Wow. And, you know, I thought it sounded good, but I, I fired it back, that song back up again with this cover band, and I'm playing it properly with the with the harmonizer. And I think back and I go, that couldn't have sounded good. It just couldn't have. <laughs> you know, you can't, bending a fifth, that, yeah. that's, that's yeah. pretty tough. Yeah. Yeah, in unison. Yeah, like yeah. uniformly across. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Very cool. Yeah. Um, well, I listened to a bit of the conversation you guys had with uh, with all the speakers for the event on the 20th, uh, but you were talking about the tools that you use to learn those kinds of things. So let's say back in you know the mid 80s, what were what kind of tools were you using to slow things down and kind of like pick pieces out? Like how how are you going about that process? It was brutal compared to what we have now. Um, I had. At one time, I had two Marantz cassette decks, which, you you know, you could slow the motor down. I guess the easiest thing would be to go a whole octave down so you're not changing pitch. But a lot of stuff, if it gets too muddy, you tune it down a fourth or a fifth, and then you have to transpose it back. And there was one point where I I wanted to write out all the solos of Van Halen's 1984 record. And I had one Marantz cassette deck playing things at an octave down. And then to get the rhythm... I I played that live onto another Moran's deck and took that down, you know, and it was it was ridiculous. Like, but I when I was recording it over, I was taking my fingers and clicking them on the machine so so I could hear one e and uh, two e and uh, so when it was down two octaves, the reason I did that was to get the rhythm right because his his rhythms are insane. I mean, he'll do a flurry of nines and thirteens and trying to write that out is, I, I probably need therapy from that project. <laughs> you know, there's a ridiculous amount of patience. I don't know that I would ever do that again, but that's what I went through. And, and also certain songs, I'd say more jazz kind of songs. I was trying to learn that I, I could not figure out what the chords were. I, I, plugged a cassette deck into a rack harmonizer to try to boost certain frequencies hmm. to hear them. And I just, the effort I went to was ridiculous. And now you can do that with an app called Transcribe. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. boom, one button, you get rid of the bass, another button, you get rid of the vocals. And so it, it's the closest thing that you can do to, to not having the actual masters of a track yeah. it's as close as you can get. And I've, I've been teaching that for years, but I've condensed it for the guitar cloud symposium. And I, I don't teach it every time we have an event every month. Um, and it, it's kind of like a smorgasbord, you know, every half hour we're teaching something different and different teachers and just keeping it going with could be slide guitar. The next thing could be acoustic tapping. You know, I try to, mix it up and offer different things every time in part because something that I did not expect was the alumni keep coming back like every month. And so we teachers are going, well, shit, I can't teach the same thing again, <laughs> two months to the same person. So we're, we're just kind of scrambling to stay ahead of them with the curriculum. But transcribe is, is something I'm going to be doing on the 20th because my focus 
although I, I'll have three different focuses. One is going to be a guitar effects primer, because if you're going to be a guitar player in a cover band, you have to know and recognize the effects that you're hearing so you yeah. can recreate them. And another, uh, I'll definitely be getting into transcribe because another, it's just a pet peeve of mine because I have spent so many hours transcribing things. When I hear a cover band that's playing the wrong notes or the wrong chords, it drives me up a wall and I run out the door. <laughs> you are Unless very I'm, good company here. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, having said that, there's different levels, right? There's the people that... Their ears aren't good enough to actually know what's on the record, and they do their best, and there's an audience for it. There's an audience of people that don't really know the difference. Then there's people that can nail it. Some of those Las Vegas bands, man, there was a, a cover band I heard in Vancouver that I'll remember for the rest of my life. They were doing stuff off the Eat em a Smile record mm-hmm. and nailing the Billy Sheen parts and the Vi parts, and it was really, really impressive. And then there's people that can take it further than that like they can get it exact but they want to mess with it and make it original and make it a little more exciting because they're playing it every night and they might get bored with stuff well dan you were actually mentioning that before we had that conversation you want to hop in on that you want to ask that question yeah well so you know obviously one of the um defining moments in my experience as being an audience member of yours was, um, was the Michael Jackson, uh, uh, work he did. And I went back and reviewed some of that, including the great video of you doing the beat it solo, like next to Michael. And, uh, it's just so amazing. Um, and what is, you know, jumps out of the screen about that is how much you completely nail Eddie's solo. I mean, note for note, nail it with some flourish. Like there's a little zhuzh you put on it. Um, I just want to first want to note that, and then and then you know how much, um, my my understanding of Michael's process was that it was very controlled. Um, so I wondered how much like freedom you had to do that, how much you got to play with the material, how much make it your own you had access to with him. Well, I I was probably the luckiest one in the band. I mean, it depends on which tour because we played different tunes and there was different mm-hmm. forums for different tours. But for instance, I'm working day and night. I I got to improvise, hmm. and I was the only one in the band that got to improvise. Because in, in the world of pop, especially pop that has sold 10, 20, 30, yeah. 40 million copies, yeah. at, in the 80s, you couldn't walk in any venue without hearing Billie Jean or right. beat it. Right. You know? So at that level, the audience, w- without even knowing it, they know the EQ of the snare. It's just ingrained, but the repetition of hearing that over and over and over and over. So there was, there was a lot of effort in trying to recreate the tones, even in the drums. Mm. You know, Ricky Lawson was the played acoustic drum kit, but he had triggers and he had as big a rack of gear that the keyboard players had Mm. because of all the stuff he was triggering because, you know, those snares on, on some of the stuff, especially in dangerous that, it was layered. Some of it sounded like a ping pong ball layered with, you know, this kind of snare and just a ridiculous, they had a ridiculous number of tracks they were working with. So I think Michael knew, um, well, Michael wanted to hear it like the record. Yes. He, he spent so many hours on all of this stuff, getting it to sound like he wanted. Of course, he's going to want to hear the same thing live, and the audience is going to want to hear the same thing live. And you would look at, out at the audience, and they were all singing his songs. Sure. They all knew every lick of yeah. every song. 
So in in something like that, it's super, super important to get everything exact. And then if he wants to change stuff, if he wants to pop in a, a spot for an open improv, great. That That's just icing on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. We've always kind of said, um, you know, it, in response to the sometimes snobbery of original bands about how cover artists are not really it, you know, like – Look, you know, somebody who's touring with Michael, right? They're doing the same process as a cover band is. Their job is to figure out the part exactly the way it is, make it sound exactly the way it is. That's it's the yeah. same process, the same thing. Essentially, that's a cover artist, essentially. I, I know. I think I, I wasn't aware of the snobbery really until recently. Yeah. You know, it's, it is the same thing. But it, it is looked down upon by, by certain people like a cover band. Ah, I did that. Um tribute bands that's not the real thing it, it, it is what it is yeah you know yeah. every genre has its thing yeah. and uh the only difference between a, a cover band and playing with michael jackson is all the songs are by the same artist right. but it's right. i didn't write it right i didn't yeah. write a lick of that stuff it was all done before i even jumped in the rehearsal hall yeah yeah and you know we have a ton of respect obviously for original artists including you have three albums of originals right that are yeah. great yeah um so, you know, that's all that if, if there weren't original artists, we'd have nothing to play as cover artists. So, okay. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for that. There. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Well, so let's double back. So I, I want to, you know, we, we just had that conversation. I want to make sure that you got to say that because it is something that is impressive because you do have, there's, a, there's a part of your work that is, you know, there's a mimicry. I mean, and you've got to cop a lot of really great players, you, you know, Steve Lukather and Eddie Van Halen, like all of these really top notch musicians, but then there's also you and you're in there. And when you, you watch the videos and you listen to the performances, like it's still you even in, you know, in the, in the replication, I guess. So yeah. I think that is super important. I think that's every, I think every player's got their little thumbprint that they put on, you know, their performances and stuff. And that's, that's super significant. Maybe unavoidably, right? Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh so, God! There, there's so many nuances in in every player's playing, and especially with guitar. Yeah, you know, it's one thing when if you got ten ten guys going up to, and playing a piece of music on piano on acoustic piano, and you're blindfolded, there's not going to be a huge amount of difference between them. I mean, the timing, of course, is is personal, and the the attack, the pressure that you do. But with guitar, I mean, which string are you going to play that E on? Because all the strings, all the positions sound different. Where are you going to pick it on the string? Closer to the bridge, closer to the neck? And, you know, a million other nuances is part of the personal sound. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you, how, do you, how did you get in the running to get into the room to do the audition to get that gig? That was really lucky. It was, it was kind of funny because when I moved from San Diego to L.A., it was motivated because the bass player in my cover band <clears throat> decided to move back to L.A. That's where he was from. And it seemed like immediately he got a gig with Johnny Rotten in Public Image. And so the rest of us are going, well, we want big gigs. We want a tour. We want to know what that's like. And so we all trot one at a time up to L.A. I ended up sleeping in his garage for three or four months before I got a place of my own. Um, and... and I was in the Musicians Union in San Diego, and in order to join the Musicians Union, at that time anyway, in L.A., you had to come into the union and sign into this book every Monday for six weeks to prove that you weren't from somewhere else and just taking advantage of the fact that L.A. has the most lucrative you know, money in the union. And so every week I'd go in, 
And I would look at the gigs book, and it was a big book of offerings. And I would see weddings and parties and bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. And finally, I just talked to the guy behind the counter, and I go, where are the cool gigs at? You know, this I'm in Hollywood, man. Where's where's the tours? And he just kind of chuckled and said, it's who you know. And, uh, and he was right. That how I got information about auditioning from Michael is one of his people called up Musicians Institute, and I was teaching there at the time, and uh, they they gave me the call. They said they, they wanted two people from that place, and I don't even remember who the other person was, <clears throat> but they auditioned about 100 people in the city, and I was the lucky winner. You know, I, I just canceled everything for three days, got my first CD player because they were pretty new at the time so I could hear things more clearly. And I, I asked what songs I should know, and I, I don't remember, but it's probably the top hits that were on the radio. And then I went in, and there was no band. It was just me and a video camera. Mm. And so the only guidance I was given was to play something funky because that would be 95% of what was asked of me is just grooves. And so I improvised something. Then I started improving more of a rock style solo, um, and and I had done three demos for my first record at that point, and one of them was a tapping solo worked out for Giant Steps, and so I played that, <clears throat> and then because I had been playing Beat It in the cover band, and I thought he might find that useful, <laughs> you know, I, I ended with that, uh, and next thing I know, I got a call that Michael was interested. And it was a matter of coming down and playing with the band and see how it goes. And they never told me I had the gig. It's just they never sent me home. <laughs> you know, week after week after week, I was canceling students and canceling this and that. Um, it was one month where the band was in one room by ourselves. Singers were in another room and dancers in another. To get down, we were given cassettes of the Victory Tour. So we could hear the tempos <clears throat> and the forms because the forms were different for dancing. And the second month was in a giant production stage with uh, the special effects and the pyro and everything else that went along with the show. And we didn't even meet Michael until the second month. Hmm. Yeah, which was kind of cool. You know, it, it's pretty nerve wracking to play for the biggest star on earth ever yeah. Yeah. in yeah. the history of ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to, to, you know, to bond as a band first hmm. and then get the stuff nailed before we even meet him. And in fact, when we did meet him, uh, we knew he was coming in that day and we were playing and we had heard that if he was happy with the music, he'd start dancing and he started dancing right away. So mm. with Greg Fellingaines at the helm, you can't go wrong. I mean, it, it doesn't get funkier than that. And Ricky Lawson, it was just a, a wonderful band. Yeah. I, I, you know, I can't even imagine the, that, you know, that whole experience of doing that for the first time. Um, were there any auditions that you ended up doing that didn't pan out in that whole process, kind of before you got going? You know, I did an audition for a cover band. When I first moved to L.A., um, my dad gave me a loan, and that loan was depleting quickly. And I was, you know, auditioning for a bunch of different original bands. I was, I was in When I got the Jackson gig, I was in five different uh, original bands. But it got to the point where, you know, this one last audition, if I don't get this, I'm going to have to get a day job. And I learned, uh, I sang several songs, Brian Adams song, um, <clears throat> and I really put in the time to get it down. And I went in an audition, and afterwards, the guy, got, the guy goes, 
yeah, that was really great, but, you know, we always have trouble with chicks. <laughs> and so that was it. I think, like, why did you even call me if you weren't open to having a female in the band? And I think it's within six months I ended up with Michael. So I, I hope that guy is aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, it does, I don't want to necessarily like dwell on that whole part of the, you know, your, your experience, but you know, what, what was that like? What was it like being uh, a female musician in a, in a male dominated situation where, you know, you are as competent and as capable as, and, and arguably more so than, you know, maybe some of your, you know, the people that you were working with, um, you know, what, what was that like and how has, has that, has that situation evolved at all since then? You know, I, I have to say everyone in that band had respect for everybody else. <clears throat> and so I was just one of the guys. It, it wasn't, there wasn't anything I can recall that stood out that, that separated me. I was just there to do my job. And, and I was also lucky because the other guitar player, John Clark, that was in the band, he was a rookie as well, as far as the big tours. And so we kind of commiserated with each other, like, how the hell did we get here? Jesus Christ, this is huge. You know? <laughs> Especially when Mike would do stuff like shut down Disneyland so we could hang out as a band. I mean, who does that, right? Who could get away with doing that besides Elvis? Uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we still, a couple of the people have passed away, but the, the people that are still alive, we, we kept in touch all these years. Yeah. Very cool. That's awesome. Um, what what is it? What is a tour experience like at that level? Like as a per like, I mean, you you basically you got the gig, you did the rehearsals, you got on a plane, and you were just gone. Yep. Basically, for you know, year and a half, two years, and then I mean, you did that over the for the next decade, basically. Like, what what is that experience like for you know for those of us who you know haven't been it in that world, like? Physically, emotionally, <clears throat> mentally, what is it? What, how, how does that work? I, I will say there's a whole lot of different levels. Uh, and that was the top level, which meant we'd fly business class. We'd get the best hotels. We didn't have to touch our luggage as long as it was packed and outside our doors. It would just magically appear at the next hotel outside the, or inside the next hotel. Um, we traveled overnight by bus. So we would already be in the next city uh, when we woke up. Um, he had reached a point of fame that he didn't have to work every day. I mean, it's, we had a hundred people in the entourage. So to pay a hundred people and keep us going at that time, his manager said cost a half a million dollars a week. That's wow. just the bottom line. Yeah. He spent a million dollars on clothing. Michael had a belt that was carved silver of different eras of his life. That was $30,000. You know, I mean, and for instance, when when Thriller hit uh, 10 million copies, Sony shut down and went, I mean, all the Sonys shut down and went to Hawaii to party. So there was some money flowing. That was the first time I ever had Dom Perignon. Um, you know, it was real, real easy to get used to. Uh, you know, I've been on that tour and I've been since then. Actually, one of the last tours I did, well, in America anyway, was with Uli John Roth and Andy Timmons. And that was sleep on a bus, 
there's really no organization when you're when you the bus stops you got to figure out how to feed yourself <laughs> i've seen both sides of it and uh obviously i prefer the upper side and, <laughs> and, and and touring with jeff beck was wonderful too it was instead of 100 people there was six yeah uh six no there was it must have been 12 there was a bus of roadies and a and a management and band in a different bus that would have obviously different schedules and that was more like a family where we would eat together and party together. And that, that was a, a really, really fun and lightning time. Um, but travel, I mean, at any level, travel can suck. The jet lag doesn't change. You know, flying from here to Japan, you're not going to feel good when you land. <laughs> it's just no getting past that. Well, and you've kept that, that travel schedule up even up until recently, you know, doing the clinics and, and all of your, you know, your solo work. So, I mean, I, I, you have to, I, there's gotta be a part of it that you do enjoy, but I can understand how, like, at some point it's just enough's enough. And, you know, yeah, it, yeah, I think overall, I mean, it depends on the balance, how, how many months you're home, how many months you're on the road, but it can be very unhealthy mentally and physically. Uh, and, and, a lot of people suffer big time and a lot of us die young because of things we can't control. I mean, there is unavoidable stress in travel. So that that's part of why I, I'm not so keen to do it anymore. I, I wouldn't mind going out for a festival here and there and maybe being out for a week, but six weeks, uh, no thanks. Mm. Yeah. I, I think, you know, this past year has been a, a real eye opener for, for all of us, really. Yes. Yeah. Um, we've spent the last year talking about, you know, I think, I think for some of us, it's, it's given us an opportunity to kind of refocus and reprioritize. But I think for a lot of people, they're just like, I think I'm good, you know, like do I've done this for this long and, you know, I kind of like being home. I kind of like not having to, you know, work every weekend. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's just, it's just kind of the way that, you know, that things are going. But yeah, I mean, I I started getting into this work because I was doing the same thing, you know, at a much lower level. I was, you know, we were in vans and sleeping on floors and stuff, but it was like, it's time to stay home and, you know, do family stuff and that kind of thing. So, I, you know, I totally get it. Yeah. Well, you know, my, my first tour ever was with an Elvis impersonator mm. in the South Pacific. Wow. And I fell in love with touring because... I hadn't left the country except for Mexico, right? And to be in the South Pacific and have these rabid fans and be on this exotic island and discover another way to live. Like they didn't wear shoes. Most of the houses didn't have walls. It was like thatched sides. It would rain for 30 minutes a day at the same time of day. And I just fell in love with the idea of discovering new new places and new cultures so I, I, I'm very lucky. I mean, I'm bitching about it, but I'm very lucky that what a wonderful way to see the world, get paid for it and play music yeah. um, as opposed to joining the army, which I'm sure some people love that too, but uh, that, I, I just leave that there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, I did a, I did a wedding this past year with an Elvis impersonator. He was a young Elvis impersonator. He was like a, like a 27 okay. year old kid. But uh, that was like his his full time gig was doing theater shows and he was doing weddings because you know everybody was off the road. Yeah, well, the the pandemic. Getting back to that, it's I like most people for the first two months. You're just like, uh, yeah. 
what, how can I keep my house? All my tours are canceled. I have zero money coming in. And it's, it was a panic. It was super depressing. I was just like sucking my thumb for two months. And then I got the idea to do this online symposium, which is an extension of a, a, a seminar series that I put together six, seven years prior, where I, I played almost every Sam Ash store in the country and some colleges and this and that. And I put together this extensive seminar um, that incorporated all the things I wanted people to know about the Transcribe app, about if you're going to be a musician traveling, here's what you should know. And then I got busy after that touring, doing other stuff. So this is 2.0. I just, the light bulb hit one day, like, duh, let's do this again, but let's make it virtual. I didn't know what Zoom was on March 1st last year. I had no idea. And and now it's my life and a lot of people's lives. And one of the benefits is so many people have been forced to learn it and get on it and learn the different views and, you know, how to upgrade the sound and get their interfaces happening that now, I mean, one of the last symposiums that I had, I had a woman from Zimbabwe. There's a guy that comes every time from Holland. I've had people from New Zealand, from Mexico City, from Australia, Ireland this last time. And that's that's something that's so beautiful that anybody on earth that has enough bandwidth can join this thing. And and I've had special guests like Steve Vai, Andy Timmons, Scott Henderson, Dweezil this last time, and I'll have Steve Lukather in April. Who gets to hang out with these people on a Zoom call? You know, it's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It, when I was at GIT, we'd have seminars once a month. Larry Carlton, Lee Rittenauer, Pat Matheny. And that made a huge impact. Just hanging out with them for an hour. Like, what's it like? How did you get your gig? So you were jamming with Gary Burton. And, you know, that, especially when you're young, that makes a huge impact. It's like you, you, you spend half your time daydreaming anyway and visualizing and that helps launch you to the next level. But to hear the inside story from people that are on the road right now, in the studios right now, really is like, this is your future. And it, and it really, really helps motivate you. And, and yeah, end of sentence. Yeah, it's great. Well, you know, I'll say this, you know, in in the process of preparing for the interview and stuff, you know, I've been consuming a lot of your content. I've been looking through your, your channel and, Watch this stuff. You're a fantastic facilitator. Like that's not <laughs> something that everybody can do. Yeah. And it seems like it's it's a thing that you you know you're just naturally gifted at, and it's just been you know you're not necessarily you're not the guest in these things. You are the you are the person in charge. You're the person that's like connecting people, guiding the conversation, like yeah. moving things around. It's 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 a totally different skill set than you know the stuff that we spend the most you know the majority of our time working on. So you know. Well, I, I'll say <laughs> it's kind of funny because uh, uh, Vicky Genfan, that's an, another instructor that's been with me, um, we're always complaining about words because we trip over our tongues all the time. And it's like, oh, God, can't they just understand without us opening our mouths? <laughs> Sometimes it's all I can do to go fifth fret, first finger, G string. Uh. Um, but that's teaching, years and years of teaching where – if you're teaching somebody and they don't understand what you're saying, you need to figure out a way to make them understand. You need different words. You need a different way. Maybe some people are more visual. Some people are more this or that. So that's helped my communis communication. 
skiles <laughs> over the, over the decades. But the, this thing of facilitating like the live streams is because I had to. That's just part of it. Had being able to promote it. I don't have a million dollars to start a new business, so we're doing grassroots with with people's social media accounts. And um, you know, I there's a reason I don't work for CNN because my skills are not that great. But I I'm in training right now. I started in August, and we're only doing this once a month. So the, I'm sure a year from now I'll look back at the ones I did in the beginning and go, oh God, how embarrassing, right? But you're talking to two guys who've been doing an hour long podcast every week for three years. Yeah. We, we know exactly what that feels yeah. like. Yeah. 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 We listened back to the first ones like, Oh, Oh, oh I, I was doing like a totally different voice. Cause I didn't know how I should be talking. Yeah. You know, we just, it's the, the, the stuff you, it's the things you learn along the way. Yeah. You know, it's just, I mean, it's just, that's just like any other gig. You know, you get into some, you're like, Oh, I should be doing it like this. And then over time you kind of look back, Oh, well, I guess, I guess I learned something along the way. Yeah, and you learn it because you have to, like you said, Jennifer. Like we threw ourselves over that fence, yeah. and we had to figure out what was on the other side, right? I tell you, after I finished uh, the Jeff Beck stuff, I was out with him for three years—not oh, straight, but you know, two records—and we did a bunch of tours and stuff. And when that was done, I remember I—I I can take myself back to the day I was looking around the house, going, "What next?" You know, I played with the biggest pop star in the world. I played with my guitar hero, and I'm not dead yet. So <laughs> there's, there's got to be something. And I started visualizing. Uh, I, you know, I had plenty of experience with bands and bands bitching about stuff and going on the roads and f finding out that the the cool guy is not cool anymore when you're on the road, <laughs> and the guy you thought would be a total pain in the ass is becomes the new cool guy. So I I was thinking okay now it's time to do my own music and the idea of putting a band together and taking them on the road i just made me break out in hives mm. i hate being the leader i you know i don't want to be the camp director i want you to have your shit together and i don't want to have to look after you and see did, did you put your socks on today you know <laughs> and so i started thinking there's got to be a way that i can do this alone to start out and i was thinking khaki king was touring at that time and uh, Adrian Legg was another uh, acoustic guitar player. I thought, well, God, I don't play acoustic guitar and I don't sing. And I had done, at that time, I had done hundreds of guitar clinics where I would play with tracks. And every once in a while, they'd put me on a stage to do it at a bar and I'd be playing with tracks. And because it was a guitar nerds in the audience, it was okay. But I was thinking that is not going to cut it for a show. You know, people that need more entertainment than watching my fingers for two hours. And so then I came up with the idea of film. I go, if I play in sync with film, then they got a whole lot to look at. Hmm. And I can just stand there and do my thing. And so I put out the word for a year and a half, Google ads, you name it, contacting film schools to see who could make films for my new record, which was the whatever record. And after a year and a half, I had a total of four films. Because people can be real flaky, you know. <laughs> and the beautiful thing is the guy that turned in the first film, it had a lot of footage from TV shows and old TV shows and things. And I thought, well, I already told him I wanted to make this into a DVD and sell it and I don't want to get sued. And that's when he hit me to public domain footage. And I go, ah, and then he showed me how to make films and 
my first like hour and a half of films was just on an iMovie. Mm. And I got every in the beginning, I mean, Wi-Fi speeds were so awful. This is over 10 years ago that I would find a movie I was interested in and I would download it at midnight and hope it was done by eight in the morning. That was like a gig and a half. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so things have changed so radically since then. In my first films, I might take a Shirley Temple movie and cut that up to the beat and make her dance to the beat, which was much harder back then. Um, but now I've I've got film subscription, so I can get really high-res clips and edit them together. And I've got everything from old monster movies where you can see the strings in the frame the super cheesy stuff to this really high res gorgeous drone footage so when you come and see my solo show it's it, it, it's surprising that i can have an 8 and 10 year old kid there watching it and they don't get bored because of the images constantly changing with the beat so that, the whole point of that is when you have to do something you figure it out yeah 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 yeah, it's yeah, very I mean, cool. It's very cool. I've I've always loved sort of the creativity that performing pulls out of us. You know, we have these ideas. Uh, the number of things I've sat up with in bed at the middle of the night and gone like, "Oh God, what an idea!" And then had to find a way to put that on stage. Right? Yeah, it's very cool. Well, I mean, yeah. and this this year has been the year of that. You yeah. know, you know, yes. you coming up with with the symposium it was like, well. I got to do something. Yep. I've yeah. got all of this creative energy and I have nowhere to put it. And you know? financial need. Yeah. Also <laughs> that. Yeah. 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 You know, and my idea in the beginning, just I had things happen from that that I did not expect at all. Mm. Uh, I thought, okay, here's the content. I, Gretchen Men, I had toured with her and Neely Brosh. And so they were in the August uh, symposium. And I said, the same kind of thing, like, let's do this like TED Talks, where each thing is 20 minutes. We're going to grab six of our favorite things that we're passionate about teaching. And that's our thing over the Saturday and Sunday. That's what we're going to do. Um, and then we're going to do the same thing next month. And the next month, the alumni came back. Well, I, I said that earlier. So I go, well, for one thing, putting together the four-day event, which is really just a long weekend, was so much work. It would just kill me to do it every month. I mean, I literally take two solid days to send out the sponsor gifts that people get. I got to collect what they, you know, what each person got, get their addresses, print them out and organize them and pack them and go to the post office. And it's just a major feat that I can't see myself doing every month. So I thought, okay, we got to do something in between. And what's coming up March 20th is what we're doing. We're calling it a deep dive. And it started out with four instructors doing an hour each and then a, a half-hour Q&A period afterwards. Uh, orientation in the morning, Q&A with the group at the end of the day, and it's pretty much nine to five. And these ones are focused on one theme instead of being all over the map like a guitar lover's smorgasbord. We started out, our first one was creating your own album. And we'd take different aspects of that to impart to people. The next one was um, Guitar Heroes. So I got Jude Gold, who's editor of Guitar Player Magazine and also the Jefferson Starship guitarist. And he was in a Van Halen cover band. And I go, okay, you're doing Eddie. <laughs> and he nailed it. 
And I was with Jeff Beck, so I did a chorus on Jeff Beck. Um, Vicky Genfan did Joni Mitchell's Open Tunings, and Gretchen Mann is in a band called Zeparella, so she did Jimmy Page. And that was super fun, got great response from it. And the one coming up is on, you know, at first I wanted it to be called Cover Band Boot Camp. Like, here's what you need to do to to be good at it. That's great. To get the good gigs, because it can be really lucrative if you have a good band. And then... For various reasons, nobody wanted to do it. And I go, okay, hired gun. And they didn't want to do that. So <laughs> so I ended up getting a whole other crew of people that were into doing it. And Pete Thorne, I've known since he was a kid. He was in my class when I was teaching at GIT. Hmm. And I, I'm so proud of how far he's come. I mean, he's he's one of the cats. He's got yeah, absolutely. He's amazing. the greatest tone and yeah. is so knowledgeable about tone and effects and all that. Played with Chris Cornell, Melissa Etheridge. In fact, he invited me to a Melissa concert when he first got that years ago. And Don Henley, uh, which is a fantastic gig. Man, I, yeah. I think of The Boys of Summer, that record, and, um, oh, God, what, what's the guy's name that played guitar on that? It's, it's, it's like Zen guitar. So, yeah. so much of it is so simple and so beautiful and perfect for that music. Uh, it's just great. Uh, and then Kat Dyson, I've known her for for many years. Uh, she played with Prince and Cindy Lauper, and that girl's just a workhorse. She's she's one of those girls that I think that could take any gig. I mean, anybody that's been through Prince's camp, yeah, yeah. that is like the Marines of the military. Uh, well, Ron, go ahead. Well, well, that was wild. Was watching that conversation that she was still doing cover work in between those gigs. You know, when she was off the road, she was. What was it? She she said the name of the band was if if you have to ask you can't afford us, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, she was still you know putting the work in in between those, and and all of the you know most of the side guys uh, that I know now are still doing that. Um, I've got a I've got a friend who uh, is the the bass player for Janelle Monet, and when she's not doing that, she she's got a she plays in a wedding band because the money's there, you know, and it's more consistent. Sure. Yeah. I mean, when when you're when you're a work for hire, those tours don't last forever and yeah. they don't put you on retainer for two years until they're working on their new record and that comes out. So you got to do something and uh, why not do cover stuff? I mean, the most of us grew up on it anyway and m most gigs are that, you yeah. know, if you take all the gigs that are paying in the world, I I'd say probably 90% are at least are cover, cover gigs. Yeah. Well, yeah, and our mentality was always been that, like, if you're a hired gun, like your job is to learn the material that somebody else wrote and recorded. Yep. Like yeah. that's your job. That and and you're in a cover band. There's one of the first videos that we put on the YouTube channel was why you're in a cover band even if you're not. Right. Which was all around that whole that whole argument, which is that if you're a sideman, then that's that's your that's your gig. That's what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So so all of us <clears throat> have so many decades of experience doing all this recording. Uh, I don't think all of us have taught, but I, I know these people have the skills to put it across because I know them well enough. <clears throat> but being able to impart the wisdom that we've learned over the years. Um, I know Kat and Pete are going to be talking about their experiences, and everybody's had different experiences. And I thought, you know, I could write this out. I could do a PowerPoint. I'm going to tell stories. Because that, that's the best way to learn. When you yes. get sucked into a story, you remember the point of the story. And people I have worked with that I will not hire again, and here's the reason why. 
um, that could save people uh, a, a lot of heartache. Because yeah. a, a lot of people, they want to be at the next level and they don't know why they're there. Or they're not there. Yeah. And they might be complete buttholes. <laughs> you know what it's like? Your personality has more to do with it than your chops a lot of times. Yeah. If you're a drag and hard to get along with and always, you know, putting screwdriver in the spokes, nobody's going to want to be around you. So that's something to think about. And um, Cat cat calls that surrender to the music. Well, I mean, that, that's kind of kind of a parallel thing where if the artist wants you to do something unexpected, you don't complain about it. You're there to serve. And you have to understand that. You have to leave your ego at the door and understand why you're there, why that person asked you to come into the room. Yeah. In fact, there there was one thing I was involved in. I'm trying to not say any names because that'll <laughs> bite me in the ass. Um, there was a, a record that was done that ended up being a lot of drum machine. And the drummer resented that. And so when we were at rehearsals, he was completely disregarding what was on the record and playing way too busy. And, you know, it was all about ego at that point, And he did not last. No. And, and I wonder if he'll ever know that that's why. Yeah, I think most people are in those situations won't ever find out, you know. It's just, yeah. it's, you know, Kat was talking in that, again, in that, that previous thing where she was like, you know, sometimes Fritz just wanted me to, to play the groove and it wasn't about being flashy. It was just locking into a thing and just laying in that. No flourishes, no improv, just like, just lay it down. Yeah. 20 minutes, same thing. Doesn't matter. That's exactly what he's looking for. That's what you're there to do. And it isn't about, you know, oh, I want to do my own thing. I want to add my own flourish. Like, no, like I'm serving, you know, the song. I'm serving yeah. the music in the moment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really important to be sensitive to, to what they want. Uh, remind me of another situation where somebody wanted us to wear a certain look and the leader had an idea for that. And the bass player just said no. And I thought, you know, he kept the gig. He was a good player, but you you don't do that. It's so disrespectful to not even try it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. I, I remember my stomach just went, <laughs> you really said no. <laughs> good Lord. It's not cool at all. Um, and we also got Mundo Jularaz, been a friend of mine. Well, he was a student at GIT also. Uh, so I've known him for many, many years. I knew him when he... Uh, <laughs> went through several different girlfriends and that guy got married and then I saw his kid in a stroller and now his kid is like 17 and playing guitar. So that's <laughs> a long time. But he's he's been in the theater shows in Las Vegas for many years. He's also toured with different acts as well. But he's he was in La Rev at the Wynn for quite a while until the pandemic. Yeah, And he did, um, he brought me backstage when he was doing Mamma Mia. And it was just really fascinating to see that side of music and that's that's why i thought you know at first for these deep dives i was just doing here's here's the theme here's four people and i thought let me bring in a guest to answer questions and open up a whole other side that probably most people that are attending have no idea what yeah. it's like to play for a theater show so well, he's, you had done you know, the the cirque show though hadn't you yeah, well, it was it was after he brought me back to the the Mamma Mia show. I mean, years after. Yeah. But having seen what it was like, I I will say I was still nervous about it because it was foreign 
you yeah, know, yeah. fear of the unknown. Um, but I'm really glad I did it. There were some great players on that gig. I was subbing for a, a woman that was pregnant. So I, I was only there six months. And I say, thank God, because they sign you up for a year, typically, um, and then re-up you every time. And after six months, I was so ready to get the hell out of there. In part, I, I think if I had gone from school to Cirque, it would have been just the greatest thing ever. This is a family, and you know they would be social and go to each other's houses and for barbecues and stuff. Um, the music was great. I'm a fan of Cirque music. I love ethnic music, and it's a lot of what they want. I mean, the the gig postings for Cirque will be, we need a guitar player that plays electric and nylon string and mandolin and maybe upright bass. You know, it's like, wow. where are you going to find these people? <laughs> and I was really challenged. I had I had to play slide on one thing and nylon, and it was it was really interesting. And you have to read. You don't have to be a great reader, but you have to read. Um, but I, I will say, in the beginning, I thought this is the best thing ever, and maybe Vegas is where I end up. Maybe I end up doing theater shows when I'm sick of getting on a plane. After six months. I felt like I was living on the moon. I was so ready to leave Vegas and mm. no humans are meant to live there. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and not only that, but after doing that show 10 times a week for six months, yeah. I wanted to gnaw my arm off to get out of there. It was so uninspiring and spirit sucking in part because I had experienced audiences going nuts. And in a Cirque show, the audiences are there for the athletes. Yeah. A lot of times they don't even know there's musicians up in the rafters. And and we were all on in-ears. And I, I would tell the leader, I, I felt so disconnected because I was on this bridge with the violinist and the horn players. And the bridge would go up and down depending on what song. We never even could see the bass and drums. <laughs> and we would get cues in our in-ears. And I, I just felt so disconnected. I felt like I could play Highway to Hell and nobody would notice. <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> And in fact, because I was a sub, I didn't have a costume for a couple months. And when I did, then they let me go down on the stage for a solo. And the first time I went down there, I'm looking at everybody, and they're looking at the act in the center of the stage. And maybe the last two bars of my solo, a few people noticed I was there. And I thought, why did they even stage me down here? It doesn't... Well, I mean, the whole thing with circus, there's something to see always, everywhere. Yeah. So I, I'm so thankful I had that experience, and I do not want to do it again. <laughs> Sometimes you got to go through something to know it's not for you, you know? Absolutely, yeah. But, you know, the, I know the, the main thrust of, of coming on was to, was to uh, press this event. And, and like I said, I, I've done enough research on uh, Guitar Cloud Symposium and just the stuff you guys have put out uh, for free that, you know, anybody who's listening to this would be well served to uh, to check this out because you're not going to get more information in a better format from the like the caliber of people that you've got like yeah. it's yeah. it's a total no brainer yeah you could you could listen to every single one of these episodes and still not get all the things you're probably going to get crammed <laughs> into that four days and another I completely didn't talk about Jason Fellman he's my booking agent for my cover band and he's got all of the tribute shows in the Northwest of America. And plus he's doing stuff across the country as well. He created a thing called Hairfest, H-A-R-E, 
which I, I don't know if it's about the rabbit or what the meaning is behind that, but it's like the Woodstock of tribute bands hmm. where he's got like a four-day weekend in, in a whole RV park where people just stay to party. And I, I don't know what it costs, but it's if you actually saw those bands, it would be a thousand times more money. So yeah. for a pretty nominal fee, you can see... I don't know, Alice in Chains cover band and ACDC and Guns N' Roses and Van Halen. And uh, he's really created an amazing thing. And he went to PIT. He's a drummer and he's yep. a drummer in his own uh, Journey tribute band. Um, he he started a marketing company in Arizona that was hugely successful. And after a number of years, he wanted to get back to music. So he sold it and came back up just to play and because he was marketing his own band so well, one by one, every band trotted up to him. Jason, can you help me? Can you help me? So he's he's the booking agent that, that does all that stuff. And he's going to impart what bands really need to know. What a booking agent can and can't do for you. Yeah. Why they would turn you down. Uh, things that you might think you have together that you don't quite have together to get the the best gigs. Yeah. So that's that's invaluable stuff and I I saw him he did a series of talks years ago for free around town because he was trying to help the bands that didn't understand that their social media sucked and <laughs> on and on. <clears throat> and so I thought he he would be the perfect guy to bring on and really round out all of this knowledge yeah to to impart to people and we're gonna we're gonna do some playing it's not gonna be an eight-hour lecture we're gonna break stuff down and do some grooves and whatnot i'm gonna in, in the um the little thing i'm gonna do on guitar the guitar effects primer i'm gonna play some examples and uh live examples of my gear and also some other stuff that's been recorded before so it's I'm excited. It's it's new. It's different than anything that we've done before, and it's exciting for me to go down my friends list and go, "Hey, <laughs> you know, it's a pandemic. You need some work. Come on over here for a day." Yeah, cool. I, I friended Jason um, after watching uh, the introductory video. I think having I might reach out to him at some point because I think having him on the show is a complete no brainer. Yeah, because uh, he's got great resources and and definitely you know we're always looking for people who kind of. Uh, match the ethos of what it is that we're trying to talk about. And, and, you know, people like you and, and, and all of the people on that, on that deal are, are very much on, you know, on the level about that sort of stuff. So it's great. Yeah. He'd be I, a good one for sure. Yeah, totally. <sighs> we have any, anything else we want to jump into, uh, Dan? I think you had a way you wanted to end this. I did. All right. So, in order to make this a little bit interesting and not just about the same old stuff over and over, I got a, I got a, a series of lightning round questions. So uh -oh. don't think about it. Just, <laughs> it comes out, just the first thing that comes out, just just let us have it. You ready? Well, the first thing that comes out might be drool, but go ahead. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll make it happen. We, yeah. We'll cut it out if we need to. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, texting or talking? Texting. Favorite day of the week? Uh, Saturday. Uh, did you have a nickname your parents used to call you? Jenna. Okay. Uh, invisibility or super strength? Wow, that's a tough one. Uh, uh, super strength. Favorite junk food? 
You know, it used to be Reese's peanut butter cups, but my teeth can't handle the sugar anymore. I, I had to cut sugar out a couple years ago. But uh, uh, that's always been number one over the mm. years. Uh, favorite childhood TV show? Childhood TV show, uh, Johnny Quest. Nice. Uh, favorite ice cream flavor? Maybe this is... Coffee. Got it. Great. Uh, what are you having for dinner tonight? Uh, sashimi. Okay. Uh, how many hours uh, sleep do you need a night? Eight. At least eight. Favorite carb? Carb? Yeah. Bread, pasta. Bagels of late. Good. Uh, how many cups of coffee do you drink a day? Too much. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. If you could only eat one thing for a solid week, what would it be? Oh, God. Um, uh, Bagels. Man. That was it. You You passed. You did it. Well done. That's lightning round. Great. Well, Jennifer, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to to talk to us. Uh, this has been a fantastic experience, wonderful conversation. Uh, anybody who's interested, check out uh, the Guitar Cloud Symposium, March 20th. Getting the Good Gigs is the name of this particular event. Uh, what is the best way for people to uh, check that out and to uh, reach out to you? Uh, go to the website. You can click contact to, re- to reach out to me uh, and click register to, to get into the program on the 20th. Sat- Saturday, 9 a.m. Pacific time to about 4.45 in the afternoon. So put on your seatbelt. There's going to be a lot of content and there's, there's going to be PDFs and stuff we uh, offer after the fact. So you, you don't have to take notes all day long. Fantastic. Jennifer Batten, thank you so much. For, uh, for taking the time out. We really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I'll see you around. All right. Take, take care. care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Wow. Well, there you go. Jennifer Batten, you guys. Jennifer Batten. That was amazing. That was amazing. It was a great conversation, and it was she was, she was everything I thought she would be. Yeah. What a delight. Absolutely a delight. <sighs> yeah. Well... I think we've peaked. I think so. It's all downhill. I think we're done. Yeah. Well, guys, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, If you want to uh, check out the Guitar Cloud Symposium, uh, you can do that. We'll leave a link in the show notes. Uh, Otherwise, if you want to help us out in any other way, you can do that by doing the things that Dan's about to say here. From Atlanta, Georgia, I'm Adam Johnson. From Greensboro, North Carolina, I'm Dan Ray. You've been listening to the Cover Band Confidential Podcast, episode, I think, 145. I, I think can't that's remember. right. I think that's right. Sounds about right. Have a great week. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. If you want to help us, be sure to share us with your friends, follow us on social media, and if you haven't already, please leave a review for us on the podcast platform of your choice. Facebook.com slash Cover Band Confidential, Instagram at Cover Band Confidential, and Twitter at Cover Band Confid. If you have any questions, please email us at coverbandconfidential at gmail.com and consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash coverbandconfidential. And for more info, check out www.coverbandconfidential.com.